Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. On October 14th, 2022, an exciting paper was published in Science showing convincing success in achieving, at least from my view, one of the holy grails of fMRI, clear maps and time courses of directly measured neuronal activity as it occurs at five milliseconds resolution. The effect follows closely the timing of spiking. And while the mechanism is not fully established, it suggested that rapid changes in T2 are caused by the neuronal membrane potential inducing reorientation of the interfacial water, as well as changes in hydration. The paper is titled, In Vivo Direct Imaging of Neuronal Activity at High Temporal Spatial Resolution. My interview is with Professor Jang Yun Park, who is the senior author and advisor to graduate student and first author, Tan Toi Fan. Both are at Sung Kik Kwan University in South Korea. Professor Park received his PhD in 2006 from the University of Minnesota. After a postdoc and position as research assistant professor at the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Minnesota, he became assistant professor at Konkuk University in South Korea. In 2014, he started his position as associate professor at Sunkyokwan University. Tantoi Fan, as mentioned, is Dr. Park's graduate student, having received his master's in advanced materials science and engineering from Sunkyokwan University in 2018, and Bachelor's in Engineering Physics and Biomedical Engineering at Ho Chi Minh City University of Technology in 2015. This is a beautiful paper, a series of stunning experiments that provide exciting new and compelling evidence that the information in MRI still offers surprises to those who look carefully. This is a method that promises to move neuroscience and neuroimaging forward and in new directions. In this discussion, we delve into many of the experimental details, the findings, the potential caveats, the contrast mechanisms, and the possible future directions of this method for more deeply and precisely probing the brains of animal models as well as humans. So it's a, it was a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. I first wanted to congratulate uh, my guests uh, who are the first and last author uh, on the paper. It's uh, Fantan Toy and Jang Yung Park. Yeah, first, congratulations on a very impressive paper. This is one of the most impressive papers I've read in years, uh, not only because of the excitement of the findings, but just simply, you know, how beautiful the experiments were and how, how convincing everything was laid out. The title of this paper is In Vivo Direct Imaging of Neural Activity at High Temporal Spatial Resolution. And just to list all the authors, it's Fantan Toy, Hun Jie Jang, Ke Young Sun Min, Sung Pil Kim, Soon Kin Lee, Jung Ho Lee, Ji Young Kwag, and Jang Young Park. I'm, I'm probably butchering the names, I apologize. And this just came out on October 14th, 2022. And as I mentioned, with me today are the first and last author, Fantan Toy and, and Jang Young Park. Uh, who's the senior author. So just to give this paper a little bit of context, at least from my own experiments, experience, I've been trying to find direct neural activity, you know, from my own research, at least, uh, looking at looking for neural current imaging, and others have been trying to do this as well, uh, you know, Lorentz effect imaging, also called NEMO, 
other people have tried to look at neurocurrent effects. Danila Bihan actually looked at diffusion changes, which he claims are, are more rapid. That's something that others have found, others may not have uh, found. So it's sort of up in the air a little bit. Uh, it's all very hopeful. So yeah, many of these past papers have you know, produced results that were intriguing, but not completely convincing, and they never quite panned out. Whereas this paper is different to me, at least. This paper was, you know, I, I sort of started it think, being a little bit skeptical. And then I, as I was reading, I was like, wow, this is, these results are convincing. You have clear maps of activation and time courses that are very clean. And it's a, it's a beautiful paper in which you also talk a little bit about mechanisms, which we'll get into. So what motivated you to undertake this project? And the first time when I met my professor and like he, he, he told me about the idea of this project and I'm, I, I, my, my curiosity in, in neuroscience and I, I, I curious about how the brain works and we can kind of, we matching the idea each other and then I feel why not? Why we don't try to, to like to learn about this because at that time I was very naive. <laughs> And like, I don't think too much about a risky. So, okay, professor, I want to get this project and uh, let's try this. <laughs> I will learn more and more. Yeah. Uh, so as far as, I mean, also you probably had a number of projects to fall back on. I mean, just even getting this project running, you have a setup in, in which you can do many different things. That's impressive, at least. The idea of using a very short TE was, was, was great. And uh, so were you looking for neurocurrent effects, or were you looking for something else? For instance, Denis LeBihan's model with cell swelling or, or membrane uh, reconfiguration. Did you feel that that was potentially something that occurred? Yeah, okay. Is it, I think it, this is my turn <laughs> to talk about <laughs> some kind of motivation. So uh, my motivation is actually based quite back to the, you know, uh, the, my, when I was a graduate student, for master graduate student, you know, not you know, kind of abnormally is that I majored in philosophy of science for oh, master degree, okay. and at the time was a very interesting complexity and also philosophical question of mind-body problem. So I was very interested in the, how this brain works and how this minds, you know, comes from. And then after that, you know, I changed it to my major to the medical physics. And as you know, I was working at a Center for Magnetic Resonance Research, University of Minnesota, you know, supervised by Dr. Michael Gaud. But I did not work on the neuroimaging stuff at the time. I worked on some yeah. adiabatic course, something like that. But yes. the CMLR is a, as a one of you know, National Institute of Neuroscience. So there are many great researchers, you know, in neuroscience and neuroimaging field, and many visitors and visiting scholars. So we had a lot of you know, great seminars on this neuroimaging stuff. And whenever I listen to their you know, uh, amazing uh, research result, uh, usually based on both fMRI, I was very amazed. But I have also has a very big question in mind. Uh, really, can we do the rebuild the secret of a brain using both fMRI? It's just, you know, I, I was not a neuroscientific researcher at the time, but I had a question in my mind. And, and I just thought is a, 
or if, what if uh, we have a uh, very high temporal resolution comparable to the duration of action potential, something like that. Because it's, I think there are some transient effects happen there. So yes. if we can follow up, you know, come up with this kind of time scale, a lot would happen. And but I didn't know what how to do that at the time. But you know, also I I worked on the other things, you know, analysis of theoretical analysis by adiabatic policy. So I forgot that. And then after I came back to Korea and now and I moved to the Songyungan University. And there are some, you know, uh, great uh, neuroscience researchers around me. And then one day I had a very interesting paper, you know, the uh, C newspaper. There is a 2014 Nature Method paper. They used the line scan method for both the fMRI. That was very interesting. Yep. So, and at the time I realized. Oh my God! <laughs> Why I didn't know? You know, if I if I use this line scan scheme, I can implement this kind of millisecond order temporal resolution as I want. Yes. Oh, why I didn't know that? Oh my God! I always paid attention to the ultra fast imaging, but ultra high <laughs> temporal resolution. So it was good. So I I tried this uh, millisecond order temporal resolution. And I want to see, really want to see what happened. That was first motivation. And at the time, I just thought about the underlying mechanism is a, you know, as you did. And I, I thought about the um, neuronal current modeling. Okay. So even if whatever, what kind of mechanism there, if we can follow these transient effects with a similar time scale, I expected a uh, I could increase the signal sensitivity considerably. That's just a, just yeah. my God's feeling. That's it. Yeah, is it? Yeah. At the time, I didn't think about the cell swelling something in detail. So observation first, and then theoretical investigation later is in this. <laughs> and that's the best way I think a, a lot of things are done, where people just it's just worthwhile always trying it. Uh, it's hard to predict what you'll see. And, and it's worth just doing it. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, the idea, uh, you know, line scanning taken to the level of imaging, you know, it's very similar to, you know, in cardiac imaging, they have cine imaging. Yes, yes. And it's essentially that. And it's and it's nice to know that, I mean, echoplanar imaging goes fast and it's, uh, but of course the readout window is so long. And here you can, you know, obviously you shortened, you shortened the readout to five milliseconds. And as long as you have precise timing yeah you can you can go even though the images themselves are are slow to re, you know to accumulate if you have the precise timing with the repetitions you get extremely fast temporal resolution yeah. I, I i love that story i'm actually surprised that in the field i think that you know people try things and they kind of try things certain ways and they don't see anything and then they kind of move on to something else and i think that this was this was just right. And, and along those lines, um, how long did it take you to see something? Actually, uh, I think as I remember, maybe maybe six or seven years ago, we just started this study. And at the oh, wow. time, is a, there's a former student, you know, not Doi. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, we started this study using uh, squid accent. Yes. So in vitro skid axon, but is a but he gave up 
you know, with his topic. And he left my lab after receiving his master's degree, not PhD degree. So and <laughs> oh, no. I met I met Toy and very fortunately he accepted this, you know, studying this project. And then he got this, you know, uh to he started uh, investigating this skin exon. But at the time we got some result, but now I'm not we are not sure because it's uh, a little bit later we found a there is some RF related artifact there. So yeah. now we are not sure this when the signal we got using the skid axon might be a real one or not. But after yeah. that, we moved to the uh, earthworm next year. Wow. We, we already submitted that in the ISMR abstract, but it's 2019. Yes. So <laughs> he digged, you know, in the backyard to find the earthworm. But <laughs> was pretty tough, you know, there was a, some, uh, it's really hard to remove all the soil inside the earthworm. So oh, gosh. inside the oil, there is a metal element, so it affects the ML signal, right? It's a, there's a magnetic susceptibility effect. So it's oh, really God. tough, but he, he did very well. And then we moved to the mouth of red tail, mouse tail, mouse tail, mouse yeah. tail right? Yeah. And then we, we, it's an in vivo study, real mouse study, but not brain. It's the first time we studied the mouse tail. And we also okay. saw something, but, uh, you know, we did not confirm that using electrophysiology, something like that. But when we saw something and when we using, used this uh, mouse tails, you know, experiment, oh, Looks like it's working in vivo in mouth. Why don't we try to mouse brain imaging directly at the time? So I still remember 2019. There was a uh, almost end of October. This ISMR deadline, abstract deadline was about I think it was two weeks before. You know? So why don't you acquire some very preliminary data? You know, uh, using this occasion skin on a mouse brain. So we yeah. got a uh, very preliminary data at the time, but okay. you know, uh, and then after that we acquired uh, more and more data, and then just uh, average them and group study, and then we more kind of sure okay that is a signal there, and then we thought about how to deal with them and then what we what could you know. Uh, what kind of thing uh, we can do, and you know, as, as like including the neural activity propagation, and what kind of experiments we need to for validation, and yeah, we had a lot of discussion at the time. Okay, so you pretty much saw something that hinted at something right from the start, it seems, and then so let's why, why don't we just dig into the first experiments just to. Iterate for for everybody. It's it was at nine point four Tesla. It was two D line scanning. Uh, the TR was five milliseconds. T was two milliseconds. Stimulus duration was 0.5 milliseconds. And then so each line of case space collected was five milliseconds. And you had I think a matrix size of like seventy two by fifty four. And so how many times did you have to apply a stimulus? The number of stimulation is exactly same as the number of phase encoding steps. Yeah. Okay. Okay. For each phase encoding step. Yes, all right. Yes, so that was, yes. All right. All right. So that's, uh, and so that would be for, for each image who is like 72, is that, is, um, uh, or, uh, 54, 54. That's the number of phase encoding steps. Okay. So 50, 54. And then 
And then the whole experiment took how long, like from start to end when you scanned, uh, just out of curiosity? Um, yeah, actually the experiment, it lasts around a few hours because we need to yes. gather the animal at the beginning and and we start to scan the localizer localizer and like API for checking the mouse response. And then we uh, go to the dynamic main scan and between the scan and scan, we also take some resting time to get the mouse, take a rest a little bit. So totally yep. it's take around four hours. Okay, for like one scan time though, let's say you were- In uh, this yeah. case is a 10.6 second. Yeah, so 10.6 seconds, that's it. That's actually what I thought I read in the paper and I wasn't quite sure. So that's incredible. And you didn't feel, that's a, That's just a, okay. All right, that's great. All right, and and so that those results then, uh, and, and used I mean, a very short TE and, and, and obviously you were stimulating very rapidly. And so for those two reasons, it's pretty clear that there shouldn't be any bold effect. And of course, it's so slow and, and it's just saturated and it's such a short TE. Then you saw you were able to create these maps and it showed that, you know, there's a clear, highly significant deviation from baseline um, at about 25 milliseconds, which or 15 to 25 milliseconds, which was faster. It, it corresponded more with spiking than with the multi-unit signal. So what is it about the multi-unit signal that makes it slower and potentially not detectable by this method? Just out of curiosity. So you're, you're talking about the, why the LFP is slower than... Yeah, why would the LFP be slower and and why should it be not detectable? I mean, it seems like the argument here is that it seems like temporally it corresponds to spiking. So... Uh... At, uh, to be honest, <laughs> Peter, at this stage, we didn't figure out everything. So it's, yeah, right, right. That, yeah, that. we observed that. It's a very interestingly, our Diana response has a strong correlation with the spiking, you know, spikes, not local potential. We also was very curious about that. I think because we are still, you know, as a not fully elucidated, you know, the underlying mechanism, a source of signal. So someday we have a clear, you know, more understanding of the source of signal. We might have better understanding to why this LFP is slower than uh, Diana response. But yes. a, as far as an LFP is kind of aggregate overall effect, right? Is a all yeah. is you know, in, in terms of time scale too, you know, is including a range of time scale, something like that. So yeah. This roughly is a, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I yeah, know. It's, no, no, I, and it's very convincing. I mean, it's temporarily, it does align with your, your spike probability. And so that was great. I mean, I actually feel that after that first experiment, you could have stopped there and it would have been a great paper. <laughs> but uh, and that was that was very convincing. And, and of course, yeah, you mentioned your supplementary data, like, you know, various smoothing and things like that. But the... the and you didn't, you used RF spoilers to make sure that there are no, you know, residual magnetization. Just had a quick question with your, with your case baselines, did, were you able to use navigators uh, to align them or was it, I mean, maybe the mouse was so well behaved and so still that you didn't need to. Yeah, actually in our, our current sequence, we didn't use the, the navigator process to align the case base, but maybe that's the, the very good idea for later like development because maybe if we work with a human or a awake animal, there may be the motion will be much more severe. 
So then we can use the navigator to align the case by line. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, that's great. So, oh, yeah. Peter, is it, can I have a one additional comment on that? Sure, So sure. one more thing is that you talked about the RF spoiling. So okay. when some, some groups, you know, want to reproduce this result, is I strongly recommend that they use a RF spooling in animal scanner too. You know, in human scanner, it's kind of default, right? It's RF spooling. But sometimes, yes. you know, write the sequence code, you know, in animal scanner. This RF spooling, we missed that very first time. But it's a, this, uh, without RF spooling, sometimes there it looks like uh, there is uh, some RF-related uh, artifact. They can be confused with the Diana response. So I strongly recommend as a, to use the RF spooling. Okay, okay. That's really good to know. And as I'm trying to think about other ways, I mean, I'm sure people will try to reproduce your results and they probably won't have exactly the configuration, but just to know those key elements, like the need for RF spoiling. I'm even thinking of in terms of, you know, like the five millisecond window, is that, is there something special about that? Like the readout window is five milliseconds as opposed to, for instance, if you were doing human scanning or whatever, could you do like a few more? Could you do like 10 or 15 milliseconds? And would that be okay? Because it seems like you are sampling very rapidly, almost fast enough that you could subsample a little bit. <laughs> okay, great, great question. I think is the one of the reviewers also asked the, requested you know to see some subsampled data. So actually, in one of the supplementary figures, we already provided. And we also actually want to investigate uh, what happened, what would happen if the temporal resolution goes high. So we provided data with the PR of 5 milliseconds to the 10 milliseconds, 15 milliseconds. And we observed that the Diana response is goes down. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think it's that after 10 milliseconds, you know, uh, with the longer than 10 milliseconds, looks like it's going to disappear. We don't know at this stage, we don't know why exactly. But so is a temporal, uh, as far we, what we know at this stage is the temporal resolution, millisecond or the temporal resolution is a key factor to capture this kind of Diana response. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, that is interesting. Yeah, because you think you could, I mean, since uh, if you just timed it just right, you could have a longer response and, and maybe it's right, you're averaging over time and that's smooth, that averages it out, but it might be more than that. There might be something else. So, oh, that's okay. That's good to know as well. All right. So let's go on maybe to the, the next experiment, which was really impressive. I, you know, changing, you know, doing the optogenetics experiment was great. Uh, to me, that, that helped convince me. I mean, First, you know, redoing the um, electrical stimulation uh, of the whisker and, uh, area, and but then switching and then seeing the thalamus, you know, to cortex. But then, of course, doing optogenetics and seeing cortex to thalamus. Yeah, I was I was impressed by that. The only question I had about that, and this is maybe something one worries about when they do any sort of neural imaging, is that why if you let's say you give the whisker electrical stimulation. Wouldn't the signal, I mean, is there a chance the signal could propagate back and forth? I mean, you'd think that there's feedback. And and so why would it necessarily, I mean, you would show this initial effect, but do you think it would reverberate? Or do you think, I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out whether, you know, if there is feedback, 
you know, back to the thalamus, for instance, from the cortex. And, and why wouldn't one see that? Oh, actually, uh, maybe I think it's, you have a couple of questions there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this optogenetic experiment, you know, you know, as you know, is a, this is, you know, very controversial topic, and many people kind of, you know, thought is oh, maybe not possible in in vivo case. You know, I don't know. It uh, looks like so. We thought about a lot of validations, how to validate them. So using electrophysiology or what what can we do else? And then there was the optogenetic experiment, this kind of direct or, or further validation. So that was the motivation using this you know, optogenetic experiment. And then yes. this feedback field forward, I'm not a I'm lo I'm learning real science now, so is a is a thalamocortical uh, is a you know there's a neural activity propagation, but sometime later I I don't know might be you know some feedback yeah, forward you know between the thalamus and cortical layer, and there's also feedback effect even in thalamocortical you know circuit right yes yeah and. In case of a optogenetic experiment, when we, uh, you know, activate uh, these cortical neurons, and then thalamus neurons, you know, activation, we expect that because is uh, we know that there's uh, some feedback effect there. So when we activated the uh, cortical neurons, oh, why not the neurons in thalamus would be act activated, you know, because there's uh, some feedback effect in the thalamocortical circuit. So that was our first expectation, and, and yeah. it, it was. So yeah, just that's it. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. And I, and I imagine there's enough maybe inhibition that damps the, you know, if there's any additional propagation that's probably damped by maybe inhibi inhibition or whatever. Yeah, yes, yes. When, when you know, you are right. Is that there are a lot of more experiments, you know, we can do, especially for this, you know, to investigate the inhibitory action. I'm also very yeah. interested in that, but it's a limited manpower. So yeah, yeah. I don't know whether yeah. I can do that, but <laughs> it's a pretty, yeah, I think it's a great idea. You know, I'm also very interested in that, you know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay. All right. So that, I mean, that to me actually, right. Then I, then I saw the, so after I saw the optogenetic experiment, and I'm sure there's, so many details that I'm missing because I'm not an expert in optogenetics, but it looked like it was just an incredible uh, achievement to actually do that right and to actually pull out the latency, uh, the difference in, in direction, which was which was just great. So to, to, to take it a little bit further then, so experiment th three or the third part of the paper I thought was sort of the validation part of the fact that it's not bold. You, know, you, you increase the oxygenation and then also you know, you, your mechanism looks, you, you suggest that it's uh, sort of a T2, like a pure T2 effect, I guess, not uh, susceptibility related to T2, but a pure T2 effect. And it, I thought it was great that you had that experiment where you, with the T cells uh, and looking at the polarity shift, um, changing the, the membrane polarity and seeing T2 change. That was, that was beautiful as well. A nice argument. Um, I also am curious though, so, right, you mentioned, I mean, any pure T2 effect would be accompanied by T1 effect. And I wonder, and obviously the T1 effect you mentioned in the paper takes longer, so you wouldn't see it. But do you think over time, I guess if it's only eight seconds, you wouldn't see like a competing T1 effect because it seems like T1 would 
pull down the signal, whereas T2 would increase it. Um, uh, so, yeah, but but there is, what's interesting to me is that that if you scan longer, I mean, I don't know, I'm just already thinking ahead in terms of human experiments, there is a T1 effect there. It's just that it doesn't, it's not transient, but it might it might accumulate over time. If you if you didn't have the speed to see this effect, you might be able to see a T1 effect um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. You you <laughs> you have a great point. You're right. First of all, about regarding the source of this dynamic mechanism, we had a lot of discussion, especially with my colleague, Dr. Seung-gyun Lee. So we had a lot of discussion because we observed something, but based on neuronal current modeling, we couldn't explain that. So we simulated Lorentz force and theoretical investigation simulation. We investigate every possibility, but was not enough to explain this signal percent signal change in in vivo situation. So yes. then uh, we, uh, one way they we had to re we reviewed some paper, you know, 2018 nature communication paper did there. They used the uh, second harmonic wave imaging to investigate the membrane potential change of a single neuronal cell. So yes. they talked about some bound water, you know, some molecules, change of bound water molecules can reflect, can be reflected in, you know, in the, to detect the changes in membrane potential. That was the starting point. Okay, then if we, we can measure that in MRI, is MRI measurable? Maybe that can might be a source of Diana signal. That was the starting point. And then as you said, is a, there was a T1, T2 effect there. And they are kind of conflict each other. So that was kind of, you know, was bothering us at the time. But when I when we simulate that, is a even if they are conflicting each other, still according to our simulation, we could see, we could explain some this kind of a uh Diana percent change, you know, according based on simulation. We also provided that in supplementary material. And also one more yeah. argument is the, from the reviewer is the, the T1 effect. T1 is always has the order of 100 milliseconds. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. on the order of it. So it takes some time to manifest itself in MR signal, even if there is a T1, T1 change there. So in this kind of case, you know, it's a very high temporal resolution it may not be easy to manifest itself. So we actually, we uh, did the experiment, T2, T1 waiting, T2 waiting experiment, you know. So we changed the flip angle, we changed the TE, and we yeah. kind of saw that we could hardly see the T1, the T1 dependence in diurnal response, and we could see the T2 dependence, as you see in the supplemental yes. material. And as you told me, in human case, we might have a more longer intersimulation period. We might need to consider this T1 effect more seriously. I think so. yeah. other smart researchers will help us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's really intriguing. And do you think that, so if it happens at the membrane, do you think there's actually, and then I thought, well, relative to the total tissue content in, in a voxel, for instance, do you think there's enough tissue? You know, at the very beginning, we did a lot of simulation, but the, the Gyeongsang Min, Gyeongsang Min, the student, another student, 
we worked on this, you know, underlying mechanism together. And at the time, he did a simulation based on the, you know, neuronal density and, you know, the amount of the portion of the bound water molecules. And then we modeled the two compartment models, you know, free water bound water. And then we simulate that. There we got a uh, similar kind of result to our experimental result. So, you know, it's very, very preliminary sim sim simulation. But was a gave us a kind of some you know strong motivation, okay, to drive this bound water thing, you know. But yeah. still, when when we did the T cell experiment, uh, we are still doing that, and we are preparing the paper. So we also see some kind of cell swelling effect, not negligible. So we mentioned the cell swelling as well as the. Uh, uh, some changes in uh, bound water molecules, you know, both of them. So, yes. yeah, but the T-cell experiment is, has a limitation because it's not a transient effect. We changed right. the yeah, membrane potential once and for all. So there was a, some logical gap between them. But still, I think is there's some contribution both of, from both of them. Now we want to yeah. evaluate the contribution of each of them now. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, it's not a final argument, but it's a lot of compelling evidence that this might be the mechanism. Do you think that, uh, and it's funny when I, on Twitter, I was, you know, posted this and a lot of people gave feedback and, and Denis Lebihan was one of the people who gave feedback saying, oh, this is, this is what I'm looking, this is what I see with, with my diffusion weighting. Um, so do you see, is there a link? So I really impressed by the, uh, Dr. Lebihan's PNSA, PNAS paper 2006, you yes. know that the fast and you know detection of uh, neuronal activation with the diffusion right. MRI, right? Yep. There he provided the explanation of the for the rapid response of you know early neuronal activation, and yes. and he talked about the this uh, membrane bound water molecules, the contribution right. of that. So I yes. was surprised when I saw that because it's, it's, uh, we approached this one, you know, like I told you, is uh, some changes in uh, bound water molecules uh, may contribute to this Diana, you know, signal and something like that. And also yes. one of the reviewers, okay, why do you know, diffusion MRI is also, they also address the direct detection of neural activity, they insist, and there are great achievements there. So when I read yes. his paper, Oh, oh my God, okay, right? Like we have some kind of link this point in terms of a, yeah. some um, signal source, you know, yes. as a, to you know, detect the neural activity using MRI. So one, one side from the diffusion MRI is another side from us, you know. So maybe right. we are approaching the same thing yeah. from the different side. But what I'm just uh, wondering is the this diffusion MRI has uh, some limitation in temporal resolution, right? Is uh, they apply yes. to uh, diffusion gradient. So maybe I think if they can reduce this TR less than 10 milliseconds, something like that. I I think is that they might find something much more interesting, but I you know we are, as an MR physicist that might not be very easy, but is a, <laughs> <laughs> that that is my you know expectation. Right. I mean, obviously that would take some awfully strong gradients to to do that so quickly. 
But it's, it, it is interesting to suggest that maybe it's some similar effect, but manifests on a slower timescale in some way uh, with diffusion and, and manifests, you know, easily seeable at this timescale uh, in this way. And it's also interesting, I think that since you're going so fast, right, you don't really have to worry about bold quite as much, but it seems like you could use a slightly longer TE to be a little bit more sensitive to T2, sure. potentially. I mean, sure, sure. Um, uh, yeah. That's still another, yeah. There's a trade-off. They say, we want to increase the signal sensitivity. We know that this is T2 aiding, so maybe you can increase the T, 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 and then we may have a more higher signal sensitivity, right? But is the, when we increase the T, we have to increase the TR too, right? So yeah. then we yeah. lose the temporal resolution. So there's a trade-off there. But yes. maybe some way to increase this, you know, uh, T2 aiding, not yeah. increasing, you know, is uh, not increasing right. the TR, you know, is something like that. Yeah, but then you would have to have the prep, you know, the prep, it would have to be fast because it's affecting whatever is changing that, that transiently. So it might not be, that might not work either. I, yeah, it's interesting to think about. <laughs> we also talk about the prep. If somebody say, you know, that's a, this study is a proof of concept. So I think that there are a lot of things, you know, we to do, you know, after this, you know, this paper. Yeah, one other question about contrast mechanisms, though, just I just want to quickly finish and then we'll, we can talk about the, the future. Um, and that is another thing on Twitter. Another question was, oh, is there any chance of uh, ruling out inflow effects? I mean, obviously the inflow effects would be really slow, but there might be some fast inflow that we don't know about. Is there, is that a concern? Yeah, of course. Always <laughs> this inflow effect, you know, it's been always bothering us. And But we we was we were able to see some clear effect. And then why, where, where is the inflow effect? And then one thing was the, okay, is a look we applied a single slice with a very thin single slice that that was kind of one little bit another thing is the uh, we we suggested the how to suppress the body effect right hemodynamic response there are two aspects one is in from the acquisition scheme this kind of you know fast you know the intersimulation period is quite shorter than the hemodynamic response on the yeah. order of second scale. So yes. we thought is the inflow effect is also that's related to this perfusion and you know this hemodyne yes. like hemodyne response relatively much longer than this you know accretion scheme. So when we simulate that kind of situation, even if there is some change like a inflow effect or hemodyne response, something like that, we could capture this kind of, you know, fast event synchronized effect. That, that was yes. our answer at this stage. That's interesting. That's, yeah, yeah so you need right. to figure it out more? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if it is, I mean, right. I mean, in, in the bottom line is that you have a robust effect and it's rapid and it seems like it's temporally correlated with spiking. I think that it seems straightforward to rule out different types of inflow effects or yeah yeah of course of course <laughs> you, you're right you're right <laughs> that's was really convincing and so the last experiment that i saw i mean uh, i'm not going to go into too much detail but i was then you know i thought okay now i'm now i'm done and then i, then I kept on reading and like oh my gosh he's they're doing layer effects and looking at the propagation of <laughs> activity from the middle layers through the upper and lower layers and corresponding that with you know depth electrodes and and that was 
<laughs> then I, by that point, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just like, so this, you know, this is probably your whole PhD thesis right here, right? I mean, you can, you can be like, uh, you can have a, to have a final defense. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This one paper. I, I think I remember a story about uh, this one guy, this one physicist, uh, uh, De Broglier, who had like a two-page paper or something, or two-page thesis. And, and this would be close. <laughs> but yeah, so that experiment, uh, I mean, I was certainly impressed with it, with the tracking of the temporal onset across layers. That was super impressive. But then what really was really exciting to me that shows something that electrophysiology can't see as easily. And that was the suggestion that you were seeing hyperpolarization early on with, with an inhibitory wave. And that would open up all kinds of things yes. uh, in neuroscience. Um, I don't, what did you think of that when you saw that? I mean, how, how did, <laughs> that must've been exciting. You know, there is a, some, something funny behind the story here. <laughs> actually, we actually, we analyzed this figure five and we, kind of have some preliminary analysis, analytical data, but we didn't include this one at the very, this first manuscript, you know, in the, as you already saw in the bio-archive manuscript. Yes. We didn't include yeah. that, but the editor you know, requested what you could do, really could do with this amazing technique well, you could do something challenging. Show me that. <laughs> and so, okay, okay, we have to include this one because it's a, and then we analyze that. And also at the time we found, we also found that because from the T-cell experiment, we knew that there's a hyperpolarization and depolarization. There is a T linear T2 relation, correlation between membrane potential change and T2. So, why not? Why do we, we could see the oh no, this this effect uh, yes. as a negative signal change, and then we actually we saw that, and we saw I discussed with the Professor Park, another corresponding author. She's a neuroscientist, great neuroscientist, and then she was very amazed, and you know, wow, we could could we see this hype in inhibitory action? Oh my God, that was, could be uh, you know. Really, really big thing. Yes, she's using uh, electron neurophysiology. Physiology. Yeah, she couldn't do that, and you know it. Right. So, yeah. So she was very <laughs> amazed, and so wow, we are very happy to hear that. Okay, so <laughs> everything is consistent with the previous study. Our result, yeah, looks right. Oh my God, <laughs> we, we did something. Oh my God, we have something here. <laughs> so. Yeah, that must have been exciting. That the, that whole process of having this, and then you know, you know, you put it in bioarchive, definitely. But the impact in 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 science was, uh, you know, I think now. I mean, I have people, I have you know, people emailing me because they know I I I think about this sort of thing, and they they're asking me, "What do you think of this paper? What do you think of this?" <laughs> so right. Um, yeah, I really and, appreciate and that, the editor. <laughs> yeah, that was actually that was a good idea by the editor, uh, without a doubt. Yeah. Peter Stern, oh, he's great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. Um, so then, okay, so now now that the paper's out and everyone's excited, they're already, all, even in my group, I have uh, a postdoc who's working on, you know, we have a sequence like this working. You know, we're seeing what we can do in human studies. Um, 
And, it, and like you mentioned, the critical thing is probably that five millisecond window. Um, I really liked your discussion in your supplementary material about applying this to humans. And one thing I didn't realize is that that you mentioned that rat neuronal density is is higher than in humans. And so so you have a boost in, in potentially the signal there. But but of course, obviously, if you use larger voxels, uh, you know, up to seven Tesla, you know, if you have navigators for the K space, uh, it would work. The only thing that I think is missing and the only thing way we can get at this would be if you did like medial nerve stimulation, potentially that would be more precise timing than visual. I mean, maybe visual stimulation would be great, but it would be really hard, I think, to unless there was some other way that didn't rely on seeing the average transient. If you could look at somehow the noise in the signal um, as a measure, as a metric for for neural activity. You know, like a like a a mass effect of you know pe- when people look at spiking, sometimes they look at just the average effect, and if you have more noise in the signal, that might show up as that might be indicative of neural activity in some regard. First of all, in terms of the a neuronal density, you're right. So actually, I gave my a rough theoretical estimation about the human translation of Diana. In, in a supplementary text, second text. Yes. But yeah, that was good. I, I like that. Yeah. Uh, actually, I you are right. Is that the density of the uh, mouse is a higher than human? But in case of human, the voxel size is much bigger than the in mouse case. But that is good or bad. We are not cannot say that clearly here because we have a strong correlation the spikes. But spikes is a kind of stochastically, you know occur so right. the voxel size is getting larger in it's a signal yeah. is bigger but it's always good we are not sure at this point i think with a better more higher resolution higher you know smaller voxel size might be better i we, we are looking for some optimal size i've been also working yeah. on this human translation now and so according to my theoretical speculation we could do that in human study. So that's the why I studied the human studies from a year ago. And I'm pretty sure is a, we could see something very clearly in S7 Tesla. But, you yes. know, yeah, I I also want to use it, but I, it was not accessible right now. So I'm trying to use that uh, very soon. But but so that's it. So is it, but uh, there are, Many things to talk about this one. Very recently, I found some very interesting paper, thanks to my another student, Kyung Sun Min. There is a, some um, invariance in current dipole moment in, in different species. So what I mean is the, the signal source of Diana might, be, might not be proportional to the neuronal density itself. What yeah. I mean is the or rather, it's maybe proportional to the surface charge density, not huh, the volume. Huh. Yeah. So okay. in that case, is a the signal sensitivity in human scanner. What I uh, I expected from my theoretical speculation may be much more reduced. But still, okay. when I calculate that, still could see even at three T. But if three T is maybe like at nine point four Tesla, you know. The kind of 0.23 percent from very small, but I still believe it could see that. But seven Tesla, 
maybe more likely to see yes. the Diana effect. That's what I expect. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, there'll, there'll be a lot of people trying, and there'll be a lot of people trying <laughs> different types of experiments. Uh, yeah, we, we're we're definitely considering this as well, and certainly, yeah, you know, motion effects and things like that would be more of a factor. I'm very sorry, you know, but is I have to add one more comment on the previous thing, you know, this, I, I, the paper I mentioned about the invariance in, you know, current dipole moment thing, you know, the paper originally uh, is a, suggested by the Dr. Uh, Padma Sandrum and at Harvard Medical School. So okay. she sent me an email about the underlying mechanism. So, yeah. I, I forgot to say her name, so maybe she <laughs> heard this pocket. Oh my God, I sent that paper to him. And so. <laughs> well, that's good that you acknowledged it. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Padma. <laughs> okay. So. I mean, all of these things are, are sort of like, you, 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 you know, there's ideas all over the place. There's good ideas, and it's a matter of, uh, right, bringing them together in the right model. And do you think that, like, in five years or 10 years, uh, this will be uh, used a lot by maybe. Uh, neuroscientists that just work in animal models, or do you think that it, it might be used by cognitive neuroscientists with with humans, but but maybe not necessarily replacing bold, but maybe complementing bold in some yeah, regard? Yeah, there, I know there is a you know very wonderful and beautiful legacy of bold fMRI. I think so I want to we inherit this legacy of bold fMRI, and so might be. <laughs> I don't know. It's a replaceable, or but I think it's better be complementary. There might be a more beautiful picture. I have, yeah. I have imagined, you know, it's a the amazing works so far. You know, in both using both fMRI. I know that. I respect them, and but I know it's many people will uh, have a better kind of a future research direction using Diana. But I have a big. Uh, direction in two two directions in in my mind and in using animal MRI is a uh, I'm preparing some disease model mouse disease model so with a neurodegenerative disease such as a Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease so I want to investigate some uh, cognitive impairment in this kind of neurodegenerative disease and also I want to investigate some psychiatric disorder too. So maybe, hmm. not maybe, I hope is a, Diana can contribute to the more uh, quantitative and accurate evaluation of this kind of psychiatric disorder or some cognitive impairment, something like that, in, from a yeah. clinical standpoint. So that's, huh. the, that's one study. And if it's working well, I also uh, think about translation to human study too. But another one is the... Um, kind of with together other researchers all over the world. And I want to do, really want to do a real functional connection project, you know, from mouse to human, you know, is a, uh, actually using Diana, I think I expect is we can um, investigate a, a, the causal or hierarchical functional connectivity of the in-brain networks. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, I've been always curious about, and so how this real brain network is really working, how they propagate this information, and how to deal with it, 
And as I told you, as I was a, I majored in philosophy of science, and so someday I really want to know is how this mind really arises from from this kind of network, and so I've been always thinking about that, you know, even if I've been working on other things. So what kind of properties of this network can kind of make this kind of mind so connect them and then figure out the dynamic network and then real uh, maybe it can give a good insight to the artificial neural network people too i think yeah yeah i'm so so what you said generated two questions in my mind so one so you're able to see cortex like the the thalamus and and and, and cortex but uh when you talk about propagation as far as the white matter track were you able to see, do you think that you could be able to see anything like, for instance, you know, along the white matter track? That, or... that was a great question. And we also expected to see that, you know, along the white matter track. Yeah. So that's the why we did the mouse tail experiments. But according yes. to our experience, looks like a, we could see some synaptic. The synaptic regions, you know, along the white matter track, we couldn't see that. Is a so exon potential uh, themselves, you know, along the white matter track, exon, that might yes. be not good enough signal sensitivity at this stage. I don't know, much more higher, ultra high, you know, magnetic field or something like that. I don't know, but it's, uh, for now, uh, we couldn't see that uh, along the yeah. white matter track. And right, it might be the propagation might be quite narrow relative to the cortex, so it might not yes, be much yes, tissue there yes, that, yes. that's doing that. That's interesting. Um, and the other question, so you mentioned applying it to cognitive disorders. Um, I'm just trying to get a sense of what that experiment might look like. I, I, I see they they evaluate their cognitive impairment like uh, some kind of exam, you know, <laughs> or ask question and answers. But what I expect is uh, when we're looking at the so apply some kind of stimulation, whatever is a visual or some some kind of stimulation. We need to look for that. But is a, and then how these networks, like maybe for example the somatosensory network, there's some kind of response delay there, or some amplitude changes, or take a, some root or some there's a, some different in feedback feed forward response. Yeah. yeah, including yeah. all of these things. That's, uh, so I also want to make uh, some good model to explain this kind of dynamic neural network. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that may be very helpful, yeah. Yeah, and one, one random idea as well, it seems it just also occurred to me as I was looking at your paper that you know there's a lot of people are trying to look at mechanisms for how uh, transcranial stimulation works. I mean, so you, you could actually, if you, if you apply transcranial direct current stimulation, mm -hmm. Uh, you know that they one possible mechanism is that it changes the the set point of the excitability or you know changes the polarity you know, just a little bit and it seems like this would be something that could detect a shift in it using Diana potentially with this oh, um, this that's a beautiful idea I think it is a, I think it's a well, for the validation of Diana you know this in terms yeah. of hyperpolarization and depolarization inhibitory actions right it's I think right. it's a beautiful right. idea yeah, right. So this is very exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, curious what your plans are, Toy. Yes, yeah, sure thing. Thank you for the question. Like, 
actually I I'm still continuing doing this project with the with another stimulation and like kind of upgrade version of the Dyna sequence and I also involve uh, like a little bit into the human study so far because it's exciting me I cannot give up <laughs> I need to continue this <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's it's actually nice because you have a result and you have something to go on and then yeah and it's just a matter of sort of delving more into it to figure out what it is how you can refine the sequences maybe to, to do it better yeah it, there's all kinds of really cool directions to take this this is and that's the thing it's it's a, it seems like a a small signal but it's robust if you do it right it seems like it works and, and so yeah i'm once again i'm i'm very impressed and i don't know if there's anything uh you wanted to add beyond this but uh but Overall, I, I was, you know, I think that this was helpful in terms of getting a sense of some of the aspects of the experiment. I don't know if there's anything. I think it's a, we discussed most of the things we need to do. You <laughs> know, and then I just say recommend people to read a supplementary materials too. You know, there are yes. a lot of figures, you know, we provided as much as possible. So they might be helpful for the further yes. research, I think. Yeah, so, and also, Peter, I'm just very, my honor and, and very pleased to speak with you today. And uh, you interviewed me, and it's a kind of special meaning to me. You know, I know you've been <laughs> very interested in this topic for a long time. So I respect it, and, you know, and I really like your review paper, the title. You know, <laughs> 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 Detection of a Neuronal Activity Fantasy. Or possibility, reality. <laughs> oh, I was fascinated by the title, and you know, I really liked that. And so, it was it was really great. I'm very thankful to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, thank you, and yeah, definitely. Um, I think that it's wonderful that you that there's so much expertise that went into this. But most importantly, I think the idea of just trying these things. I mean, not knowing, not actually. I know so many people who sort of like, you know, they sort of talk themselves out of experiments. They're like, oh, that's not going to work because it's not this or the, and, and just trying these things, I think, is the key to advancing. Uh, and, and certainly if you, you've excited the, the entire uh, field of uh, at least neuroimaging uh, and many neuroscientists uh, from this paper. And so we're all excited. We all want it to work and uh, we'll all do our best to, to see if we can make it propagate and work better and it's a wonderful tool yeah again is a just inheriting the beautiful and wonderful legacy of bold fmri i just want to make a make a big leap forward you know with other colleagues and other you know community people together and that's what really that's what i really hope and <laughs> okay yeah, well, 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 well. Thank you both. This was a, a great discussion. Um, hopefully, it will be helpful to all the people listening and 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 watching. It's actually going to be on YouTube as well. Yeah, so please, <laughs> a, this is our first time to join the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, we got. It's actually it's it's a growing audience. Now, this was perfect. This was perfect. This was really it's helpful. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. And uh, and once again, congratulations to both you and and look forward to seeing you at some meeting. Uh, presenting yeah. more data. Of course. So. Thank you very much again for inviting us. Thank you very much yeah, for everything for your time. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Neuroscience is brought to you by 
Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode is produced by Ömer Faruk Gülban and Jeff Mantich.